Do we have any middle children in here? Anybody middle? We got a couple. We got a few. We got, we got several. Um, I'm not a middle child, but I still feel some sympathy for you who are middle children. Middle children don't ever get the benefit of being the sole focus of their parents' attention, right? That's part of being a middle child. From the time you're born, you have another sibling or two or three or 23 with their own needs and their own wants and all those things going on. And your parents, to be good parents, have to take care of them as well as you. So you never really have that. And, and it's hard for a, a middle child to know what it's like to be first. Because usually your older siblings are bigger than you. They're stronger than you, faster than you, smarter than you. Not always. <laughs> and that changes as time goes on. But at least initially, you're kind of against it, right? You're, you're up against it. And even their prestige as the baby of the family only lasts until the next child comes along, right? That's what puts you in the middle. And even that, which was your one claim to fame, I'm the baby of the child. No, not anymore. You're just stuck in the middle, right? That's, that's how it works. Now, being the middle has some benefits of its own. I mean, one thing for me and my family, my middle sister, she always kind of had me as a shield above her, right? Because if something goes wrong that the two of us got into or whatever, well, Brett, you're the oldest. You should have known better. You know, she was coming along with you. There's a little bit of that protection that would happen for some, some time. But we know that, that many middle children become very well-adjusted, happy people. But there's also some real challenges as well with being a middle child. Now, one of the things that middle children are often, and I know I'm making generalizations here. Some of you middle children are like, no, not me. Middle children are often sensitive to the topic that we're going to look at here today. Favoritism. Favoritism. Playing favorites. Right? Now, in this case, it doesn't work out because she's tallest, so she might be the oldest, but favoritism. Right? And the other kids are on, on either side here are like, this isn't fair. Life's not fair. Right? Any of you middle children say, yes, I have an incredible radar for favoritism. You know what's going on? No, they won't, they won't admit it. If, we, if I asked the youngest ones, they'd be like, yeah, I know what's up. All right? Well, that's, that's the way it is. But, but what, we got to talk about this favoritism thing here because this is what we're going to see here in this passage of Scripture today. Um, with that favoritism, part of the reason that middle children recognize that is because of the desire for their parents' attention and love. And with that, they're always trying to pay attention to who's getting what. Maybe for you, it's not about saying, well, that's, you know, they're your favorite. But maybe with your parent, it, you were the kid that was always like, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Because you're always trying to figure out where do I fit in this world? squeezed in between these siblings and what is mine and what is theirs and who gets what and who gets how much and all that kind of a thing. Now, like I said, it's, this is not the exclusive ground of middle children. Um, in fact, many families, it, it goes in other places too. But the desire that that child has, that desire is, is that they want to be the, a full-fledged member of the family and feel like, like any restriction on them is favoritism 
uh, if, if things don't go their way. And whether or not that's actually happening in a family, um, birth order and family dynamics are complicated. But favoritism and preferential treatment aren't only found at home. And that's what James wants to address here today. Now I'll tell you, I've never preached a message on this topic. And in fact, if I was going to pick my list of top 50 things to preach about, it wouldn't be this. But this is what we find here in this passage of scripture. And that's part of the benefit of going through a book of the Bible all the way through. Because sometimes you're stuck with things. You're like, really? Am I supposed to talk about that? Well, yes, I am. Here it is. All right. Let's read it together in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality. That's favoritism. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? All right, here's the first thing that we pull out of this and we're going to look at a little bit here. James says, look, and remember this about James. I told you, James is very blunt. He likes to just, he calls it out the way he sees it. But he's not just thinking about, well, what if? You know, what if this happened at church? Instead, what we feel with James, because he's so direct, is probably what happened when James wrote this letter, was James would gather all this information. Remember, he was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And he's writing these letters to all these other churches that have scattered all out through the, the kingdom. And what he's what he's receiving as the leader of the church there in Jerusalem is he gets all these details. People come and visit from this town and that town and they say, you'll never believe what's going on at my church. And they give all this info to James. And so James has this whole wealth of things that he needs to address. These things that have constantly been spoken to him and he hears this and he hears that. And so when he sits down to write this letter, he cuts away, cuts the fluff and he says, oh, I gotta, I gotta talk about that. I gotta talk about this. I gotta talk about that and this. And favoritism, this incident, you know, the names were changed to protect the innocent probably. <laughs> but this sort of a thing had probably happened in some of these churches. And so James says, okay, that's not all right. We've got to talk about this issue. Because what's happening is there's been this separation, this gap that's happening in a church, and this does not belong here. And so we've got to talk about it. And so the first thing he pulls out here is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. And the, the statement is simply this. God does not show partiality. God does not play favorites. And neither should we. James shows it with the, the rich and poor illustration that he gave us. Listen to the way Paul describes it also in the New Testament. And here he's talking about the difference between servants and masters or employers and employees. The separation that happens there. Here's what he says. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. He says, bond servants, 
Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There's no partiality with God. We, many people, Christians and, and non-Christians know John three sixteen, right? What does it tell us about that? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? That's, that is what we find with God. And the categories that we put each other into are often not the categories that God puts people into. And the Bible teaches us that favoritism is sin that comes from a dark place in our hearts that needs to be dealt with. And favoritism can have a lot of other unexpected things that, that we don't want to see in our lives. Now, here's an example. The Bible gives a, a, a pretty vivid illustration of favoritism. And you might know this story. Uh, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And the story is about a man named Joseph. And if you remember this story, Joseph was one of 12 brothers. The 12 tribes of, tribes of Israel all got named from these 12 brothers. And one of those brothers, Joseph, was the second to last. He was number 11 of 12. So talk about being a middle kid. That's like a middle toward the bottom. But the difference here with Joseph was, Joseph happened to be the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife. Now, we're not going to go into the whole details about how Jacob ended up with as many wives as he did and all that mess, okay? He had more than one wife, and his favorite wife had this son named Joseph. He, she would then have a younger brother and die in childbirth with his younger brother, Benjamin. But Joseph was the firstborn of his favorite wife. Because of that, Jacob loved that son more than all the other sons. And he let everybody know about it. And as you can imagine, all the rest of these sons, all those other middle kids and the oldest kid, all those kids were like, what's the deal? What about us? We're your sons too. We've, you know, served and done all we're supposed to do. We're, we're good sons. But you pick this one out? Not only that, Jacob would go so far into showing his favoritism. Jacob goes to, I don't know where, goes to Macy's and he gets like a designer jacket for just Joseph, all right? And this particular jacket that he's got is, it's, it's flamboyant, it's, it's boisterous, it's colorful, it's vivid, it's beautiful. I don't know why he'd wanna wear the thing, but he does. And Joseph marches around his brothers wearing this slicked out jacket and all his other brothers are like, man, I wish I had that jacket. And Jacob continues to just, oh yeah, look at my son in that jacket. Hey, do you see your brother? You see that jacket I got him? Whoo! Right? And the brothers just go ballistic. They don't out and out attack him for it in front of dad. But behind the closed doors and out in the fields, they're like, I can't believe this. Who, what this kid? Right? And as the story goes on, what we ultimately see is the, 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 all the other brothers are out in the fields. Jacob sends his son Joseph, because, you know, he didn't make Joseph do the work that everybody else had to do. 
But he sends Joseph to go check on the other boys. I don't know where your loser brothers are, but why don't you go find out what's going on? So he sends Joseph out into the field and the brothers are like, all right, this is our chance. We're a long way, long way away from home and daddy's little favorite's out here all by himself. Now what are we gonna do? Well, as the story goes on, first, a couple of them say, let's just kill the guy. Okay, it's come to that point. Let's kill him. And they don't mean, you know, shove his head in a toilet or something fun. They mean kill him. So one of the older brothers talks him out of it. Oh, hold on, slow down, guys. I don't know if we really want to do that. But hey, here's a pit. Let's throw him in the pit for a little while. Hold him there until we decide what we want to do with him. They have their conversation. A group of slave traders comes up. And one of the brothers says, oh, this is our great opportunity. We're going to sell this kid as a slave. And they do it. They take off the coat. They dip it in blood. Take it back to their dad and say, sorry, a wild animal must have got your favorite. All right. So why do I bring up all this story? Because what we want to see is we want to see what this favoritism stirred in the hearts of somebody else. It brought these brothers to actually hate one of their brothers so much that they would murder him. And if not murder him, at least sell him into slavery to never see him again. All right? There's serious, it, there's serious results from this sin. We've, we've learned that already in James, that sin, as it grows, and it gets a little farther, and a little farther, starts out, might seem okay. Yeah, make fun of the kid with the colored jacket. But it can grow into a place. And what did, it, what did James teach us? Hey, sin, when it's full grown, it leads to death. That's what comes from it. Favoritism drove those brothers to want him dead. Now, now here's the question then. What would make those brothers, and what would make anyone really, become so sensitive to favoritism? Maybe in their family. Let's go back to that that uh, illustration there with the, the, the kid that feels like, man, I'm not the favorite. My siblings are the favorite. Well, maybe it's because they have experienced favoritism. I mean, Joseph's brothers, they had a pretty good argument on some of this. Was a lot of the, the guilt and the, the problem with the dad? Yes. Jacob was a jerk. You want to go through the Bible and look at that? I know he's father, <laughs> the father of one of the, the patriarchs. And he'll probably have something to say to me about that when I get to heaven. But Jacob was a jerk. He ripped people off. He was, he was conniving. He was, he was not a good guy. And he did this to his sons. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe they have experienced that favoritism and don't want to let it happen again. Or what also happens is sometimes they haven't been victims of favoritism, but they've interpreted it that way. And they've seen it that way. And, and really it comes down to the fact that they're afraid that they'll get left out. And if you reduce favoritism down to its bare ingredients, it really is a fear of being overlooked, ignored, forgotten, or abandoned. And none of us want that. None of us want that. No matter what our birth order is. So then why do people play favorites we know that it feels lousy to be the person that's the victim of favoritism why then would people ever do it why do people show favoritism to others because we know that our need for connection and acceptance that's a good thing that's actually how God made us but like so many things that good desire gets twisted 
And we move from not just wanting connection, but to actively carving out space that guarantees our place in the world. That's why someone would be playing favorites. That's why someone would give preferential treatment to somebody else. Because what it really comes down to is I want to treat you in a special way because of something I get out of it. That's where it, it, it ultimately hovers. Our interests get lifted above the interests of others and we start to just fight and claw and step on anyone or anything that'll get in the way. And it's from that place that we find partiality and favoritism. You know, here's one of the biggest problems with favoritism. It works. Favoritism works. What do I mean by that? Well, what I, what I mean is that the person who's showing that special favor to someone, they get the attention and the opportunity that, that they want. And then the person who's on the receiving end of it, they get what they want. They're like, oh, they're treating me like I'm special, like I'm, I'm better than other people. And they get the, the compliment or the acceptance and the adoration that they want. The problem is, everybody else on the outside gets left out in the cold, right? So for Jacob and Joseph, Jacob was like, oh, it's my, he's my son and I just have a son I can just pour all my affection on and I can love him and focus on him and remind him of his mother and it, it's, it's so good and, and I love him and he loves me and he's special to me. And Joseph's like, hey, I, I don't have to do the work my brothers have to do. I get to go where I want to go. I get this slick clothes. I, you know, it's, there's, there's this mutual thing that's happening here. But everybody else is left in the cold. And God does not leave anyone out in the cold. That's not what God does. That's not how God functions. So the real question then is, okay, we can talk about dysfunctional families. And we could talk about that forever and always. Right? Because everybody's family's got some dysfunction somewhere at some level somehow. But how then would favoritism or preferential treatment, how could that find its way into the church? How would James bring this up and say, I'm not even talking about your families, I'm talking about in the church. Now he gives this description of the rich man and poor man, okay? And, and what he's saying there, I mean, picture it, even if it was to happen today. You know, you have this, this person that, that comes in the doors on a, on a Sunday and he's, he, he's got it all together. He's dressed well, he, he looks good, he smells good, um, he says the right things, he's connected to the right people, and you're like, okay, here's this person. And then somebody else comes in and they're the opposite of that. They look disheveled. They don't seem to be dressed well and don't look good and may not smell so good. And there's a whole lot of things going on there. Both these people come in the door. So why would a person at church favor one over the other? If you're standing there doing the usher job that day and they both walk in, which one, which one do you want to greet first? Which one do you want to go to? Which one do you want to try to con converse with? How does that work? And why would we even have to make those distinctions in our mind? Why? Because that's naturally how we navigate the world around us. Look, we all make judgment calls all the time. In fact, every day of your life, you're making distinctions between things. Choice after choice after choice. All day, every day. All right, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that is our natural instinct. 
We, but here's what we have to also recognize about our natural instinct. Because just because it's a natural instinct doesn't mean it's the way God wants us to live life. All right? There are certain things that he has to help us grow out of because we know naturally we're fallen people. Like we talked about anger uh, uh, last week, a couple weeks ago. Anger, it's, you know, you might say, well, that's naturally how I respond. When somebody says something they shouldn't, I blow up. It's what I do. All right, but God has taught you, oh, but, but you can be angry, but do not sin in that. And so there's got to be a change that happens. It's the same way here. Just because we naturally want to make those distinctions between people and naturally make distinctions that serve ourselves, God calls us to something different. And he's calling us to make changes in the way that we live in the world. And what's God do? He exchanges our self-centered ways for others-centered ways. We become gracious givers like he is instead of greedy takers, which is what we naturally are. Instead of relying on the distinctives of the world, he calls us, God calls us to use kingdom distinctions. Okay, what do I mean by that? When I say that God says we should use kingdom distinctions, what am I meaning by that? Well, we know as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, you know, you've been told you're saved by grace. It's by grace that we're saved. Not by the standards of the world that the world has set for success and value. All right? You can be a saved child of God that has their eternity totally squared away and wrapped up in heaven and a real failure on earth. Why? Because it's two different sets of values. We're gauging things in two completely different ways. The flip side of that is also true. You could be wildly successful on this earth. Everything that you put your hands to is fabulous. But you could be so distant and far from God. Right? It's two different kingdoms that we're talking about and two sets of standards. Listen to, to 1 Corinthians, what the Bible says about this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. It says, for consider your calling, brothers, so other Christians here. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. Jesus taught us that it's difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. All right? And there's several places that he talks about that. But it's not just about bank account dollar amounts. It's also difficult for a successful person, a powerful person, a person of great influence. The reason for this isn't because Jesus was some socialist at heart and he wants us all to be equally poor. That's not why he said those things. The reason he said that is because it's a simple fact that the more self-reliant that we become, 
the more difficult it is for us to know that we need a savior. If you can do it all on your own and you're self-sufficient in every way, why do you need a God? Why do you need anybody else? Why do you need anything else? You've got money in the bank and insurance policies if something goes wrong. You've got all the food you need, all the people you need, the house you need. Why do you need a savior? That's what Jesus is saying here. But every person who is a part of God's kingdom, this other kingdom, shares the same desperation for Jesus Christ as their savior. Because without him, no one, no one will enter into eternal life. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said that very thing. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So instead of the usual distinctions that we make when we sort people out, God tells us ultimately there's two kinds of people, two types of people in the world. Those who trust in Jesus as their savior and those who don't. Yes, there's a lot of other adjectives and details that surround both those people. But really, it really, when it sorts out, it's going to come down to those two things. And that's the way the Bible describes it. It says eventually at the last judgment, God's going to separate those who know him and those who don't. One on the right, one on the left. And it's going to be sorted out and separated out. And we don't know who is who, but we do know what to do. In Matthew 25, this is what Jesus says about it. He said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Does this sound like a successful person? Sounds like a person that the floor has fallen out, right? Everything's bad. You're poor, you're naked, you're sick, you're in prison. This is not good. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see what's, what's being described here? He's saying, listen, it's not about the usual distinctions that you make in this world. It's not what you're called to as believers. You're called to start seeing the world and seeing people with a different set of eyes, a different way of looking at other, other people. And, and you have to make sure that you don't get off track. You see that person that seems successful and has it together and is well-connected, that, that can speak elegantly and they they're great hosts and they're they're kind and they're loving and they're giving and generous and you're like oh that's got to be the person and then you see this other person that doesn't have it all together and you're like well if I'm going to pick between the two it's got to be that way this is the whole thing this is this is social media this is all that stuff what's next what's bigger what's better what's that's where I've got to go that's where all the good stuff is but that's not what he's saying here. He says, no, you've got to understand there's, there's two types of people, those who know me and those who don't. And we have to be able to distinguish where those things are. Now, here's what I want you to also understand. What, what James is not telling us here 
And what we don't learn from this is he doesn't say, well, what it really comes down to is it's the, the, the has Jesus and the has nots, right? We can also go on the other side of that and make another false sense of, well, it's the Christians and the non-Christians, the believers and the non-believers, and that's how we're supposed to separate it all. No, partiality or favoritism really has no place. He says, no matter which way you lean into it, if you're playing favorites, it's wrong. Why? Because it creates barriers to relationship and therefore it's sin. So what do we do about that? This, this uh, commentator named Warren Wearsby says this about it. He said, how do we practice the deity of Christ in our human relationships? He says, it's really quite simple. And he's talking about people coming, this passage, people coming to church, all right? The, the rich people and the poor people, as it's described in James. He says, it's really quite simple. Look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. If the visitor is a Christian, we can accept him because Christ lives in him. Rich, poor, otherwise. If he's not a Christian, we can receive him because Christ died for him. It is Christ who is the link between us and others. He is a link of love. So who is it that God welcomes into his family? Is it just the elite, the brilliant, the super talented, the bold and the beautiful? No, those descriptions don't make a difference. He welcomes all that would come to him in faith. That is how we are to distinguish. And as a church, we will do the same. We will welcome all who would come to him without treating one better than the other. That's part of what it is to be a church, a group of people that love our neighbors. Love the people that come. Love the people that are here. Some of the people that will come into the doors of church will have it all together. Some of the people who come to the doors of the church will not have it all together. They'll have nothing together. And the whole spectrum is all there. We're called to love everybody that comes through here. Because we're equally pouring out the goodness of God to others. And that's exactly where James goes with it. Look there in James 2, now in verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law that fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The the reason he describes it as the royal law here is, well, for one thing, it was given by God, the king, in Leviticus 19. Um, But then also it was referred to by Jesus when a Pharisee came to him and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus, if you're going to tell me what the greatest commandment is, Jesus responds, and here it is in Matthew twenty two thirty six. He comes, he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, and that's this one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We are called to love one another. And favoritism 
violates that law. How is it that we look at those who come into church with us? How do you, how do you view those, those people? Now, I know that part of that is now having a conversation about your own insecurity, right? Because it depends on how comfortable you feel. If this is your church, if you feel like, yes, this is my church, these are my people. You're specifically the ones that James is addressing here and that I'm addressing here because you're the ones that are the welcoming committee that comes in. You are the ones that are looking, you recognize faces or don't recognize faces. You're the ones who see the visitors and the guests, the family members, whatever it is. So how do you look at those that come into church? These are our neighbors. Do you love them? And, and let's, let's be honest, let's brag. We're a church that loves each other. I experience that here. In fact, my best friends are people in this church. But we must always be a church that strives to never be short on love. Because what can happen, you can get comfortable with your little pack of friends. And let's be honest, I'd be perfectly happy just to do church with you guys from here on out. Just us. We just stay here in our little group, get to know each other, live life together. It'd be great. But there's lots of people out there that do not know the love of Jesus. That's not what the church is called to do. We're not called to be our little, as pastors have said, our holy huddle, our little crew, our little people. No. We're called to pour out that love on, on everybody that would come through. And a church that is always welcoming, inviting the people that God brings to our doors. And like we see here in James, some people will come in with everything together and others will come in with nothing together and we will love them all. Isn't that the church you want to be a part of? Amen. Let's look at the last verses here as we finish. In verse 12 and 13, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That's freedom. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As Christians, we know that we have been given mercy through Jesus Christ in place of the judgment that we would have received without him. That's what the gospel tells us. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to be punished for your sins. Jesus took the punishment of those sins upon himself. That's what the gospel, the simple gospel message says. So we know that we've been given mercy through Jesus. And because of that, we need to be reminded that we then reflect that with our interaction with other people. That's why we're people that pour out mercy on, on those that need mercy. We've, been, we've received mercy. That's why we pour out on love to others, even the unloving or unlovable, because we have received that love. And in that, if that's how we're interacting with the world around us, there is no place for favoritism. It just doesn't belong. No, the people that step into our church family won't be perfect, and neither are we. But as Christians, we being those people that have received the love of Jesus, now can go and begin pouring out that love on others. Amen? Pray with me this morning. God, I do thank you for your love for us. And just as I'm reminded this morning 
of the mercy that you have poured out in our lives, Lord. I am grateful. I am thankful. I am so thankful that the blood of Jesus covers my sin. And I am grateful that that blood is effective for covering the sins of my brothers and sisters here today. Because without you, we would be lost. But you, in your love for us, have poured out that love upon us. Lord, may we be a people, may we be a church that is reminded daily of that love. And Lord, may that love continue to grow in our hearts to a degree that it pours out on other people. Lord, may everyone that ever comes into the doors of South Point Church feel and receive love upon love upon love. Because no matter who they are and no matter what they've done or no matter where they've come from, you love them. And we love what you love. And therefore we love them. We love our neighbor and we want to be a people that love our neighbors. So Lord, help us change. Help us change our usual categories of sorting people out Keep us from playing favorites. Keep us from all of that, God. And instead, let us be these people that really know how to be hospitable and welcoming and that we could invite people to come and know you, that their lives could be changed just in the same way that our lives have been changed. That they could have hope, that they could have freedom, that they could have forgiveness, just as we have received those things as well. And so we pray today, God, that you would make us those people, that you would build our church in a way that people experience love, everyone that comes our way, and keep favoritism far, far from us. And it is in your name we pray these things.